And I kept waiting for us to see like, oh, but this was, you know, the man's perspective on Bella's journey. And I kept waiting for that to happen. And then it just never does. And that was something that disappointed me because I thought that was just such a great element to the book. friends to episode 302 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Yorgos Lanthimos' 2023 film, Poor Things. And joining us again, this time in Godwin Baxter's laboratory, is friend of the show, Laura of the Why the Book Wins YouTube channel. Welcome back, Laura. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So we know that you just covered it, this project on your channel, so we'll shout that out and make sure people go check that out. Um, but it sounds like you just went and saw this film for the second time. So what was that like? What are your general thoughts on it for those who haven't checked out that video yet? Yeah, so by the way, that video has done really well. It's become like my second most viewed video. So definitely go check that out. Congratulations. I saw it doing well. Uh, but yeah, so I saw this in theaters when it came out and there's something about the movie that's a spoiler, so I can't really get into it. But when the movie mm -hmm. ended, I felt very conflicted. <laughs> and so I had been wanting to see it a second time because I thought maybe now that I knew what the movie was, I was curious if I would like it more or less on a second watch. Honestly, I feel like I felt the same. So I gave it like four <laughs> out of five stars. So I do like it, but I definitely have my critiques. But I am glad I got to see this in theaters because visually it was just so stunning and there were certain things about it that were just so unlike any movie that i've seen and so it is quite the experience yeah you're you're echoing a lot of what i what i felt as well in the theater i was just i waited so long to see this film because i think it was like two months since release because we were going to cover it for the podcast and i'm so excited to talk about it i mean what a visual spectacle it was but luke what were your thoughts on it um seeing it for the first time after reading the novel we talked a lot last week about the novel and how just fascinating a story concept it is, how it was layered in all this ambiguity, and there was all these story frames being employed. Um, and I thought like they probably would dispense with a lot of that and just focus on the story itself. And I was right on that account. Um, I, I expected it to be surreal, but it was even more surreal perhaps than I was ready for. Um, but I enjoyed that element of it. it made it very fun in a way, um, extremely stylized. Uh, in a way that it, that I think was really engaging. Some smart changes made to the story. It's a little more focused on uh, Bella Baxter as you know the sort of POV character for this story, um, and it made it a little bit more about her and like a little bit less about the men. Um, so I liked that. Um, yeah, I have I have some some mixed thoughts about as far as like every change that was made, but like overall I think it was good. It was a solid adaptation. Had a good time with it. Um, my first Yorgos Lanthimos film. Uh, so it was, it was fun to be exposed to a new filmmaker. I don't know if this, how this lines up with, with, with the rest of his work. You'll have to tell me, James. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that as well. Laura, I wanted to check in with you, though. Was this your first Yorgos Lanthimos film as well? Um, I saw The Lobster when it came out, but that was a while ago now. So, And I liked it. And I keep meaning to see The Favorite, too, because that has Emma Stone. So that's high on my watch list, but I haven't gotten around to it. The favorite's excellent as well, um, but at least you knew going in there was going to be some like absurdist, bizarre craziness going on in this yeah. one. <laughs> Yorgos Lanthimos, I, I mentioned actually in our last week's coverage, when he released The Lobster, he 
came on the scene in a way that I was like, I'm going to see everything that this person makes because he was such a unique voice and, and like just really bizarre and absurd in ways that to use a word that I used last week, transgressive for Alistair Gray's uh, story. Like he, he loves to put his stamp on these taboo subjects. There's a lot of sex in his work and the places that that can go in ways that'll make people feel uncomfortable and otherwise. So it's interesting that like this story so well lines up with some of the things that I feel he's already known for. But um, yeah, just talking about my experience, going to the theater was really fun as it always is. Uh, this movie is getting tons of buzz right now, Oscar wise. And uh, I think it has a good shot at winning just based on the people involved and, and like how much people seem to be loving it. Um, I think there's a couple other movies like Past Lives and some others that, that I would love to see um, win some of the some of the top awards. But I mean, you're going to have to I have to think that Emma Stone's going to win for this role because she has an incredible amount of range in this role um, and gives a performance that I haven't seen out of her in, in an otherwise like great career up to this point like everything she's done i feel like she's she's always nailed it um this one was like i mean just the way that she handled acting like a child at times and and then the depth and the emotion to the to which she takes the character um she's absolutely the standout and then yeah just to talk about production design visual cinematography yorgos lanthimos is like weird humor that he puts on like all these reactions and um and like cuts that 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 uh, happen in this film I like that. That that speaks to my sensibilities, and it definitely feels like you're in the hands of like an auteur who's playing with the form and is very intentional with every piece of of the production. And you just look at the sets, and the, the I, I read a lot of this was filmed in studio. So all of these stages that they're that they're building, Lisbon, and and all these places that they go in, um, and like Luke mentioned, the surreal nature of it all, the way that it just feels like otherworldly. This is alien territory. But it's supposed to also reflect like Bella's journey in discovering and exploring the world. Very visual film. I think that's that's definitely a huge part of why it's getting the buzz that it is, um, as well as the performances. So yeah, I, overall, I really, really enjoyed this film and I wanna dig into more, but just world-class, I mean, across every department, this was just like such a well-produced film. Yeah, as far as like the Oscars and movies from last year, I could talk about that so much because I watched all of the Best Picture nominees plus a lot of other movies from last year. But yeah, I definitely think Emma Stone, she was incredible. And I saw an interview where she talked about how she and Lanthimos had, they had created, I think, like 12 different phases for Bella to go through in her progression, but that was too many. So then they narrowed it down. And I think she said they had like five. And so that's kind of how they determined like, okay, this is her at stage one and this is how I'll be. And then practicing how to walk at these different stages. And yeah, she was just incredible. And then I thought Mark Ruffalo, of course, was hilarious, but so was Willem Dafoe and then uh, Rami Youssef. I think his character, Max, was someone that I found funnier this time around. And so, yeah, the cast just all, all around was just so entertaining and so good. I, I totally agree. I just got to chime in on on the the praise for Emma Stone. Absolutely incredible performance. We talked about this sort of thing recently when we were doing this Hall of Fame episode where we were inducting uh, adaptations as like the best of all time. And uh, I was only awarding points for like truly career defining, unbelievable, transcendent performances. I think this might be one. Of course, we're in the, we're in the sort of the thrall of it. It's very recent, so time will tell. But um, there's just so many incredible moments, the physical performance she's giving on top of everything else, the way she's displaying like mental maturity progressing throughout, you know, it's never the same character, like from scene to scene, it's morphing. 
Um, so fascinating. And then, you know, there's a dance sequence that is among some of the best I've ever seen in movies. <laughs> I would put it up there with Pulp Fiction and like some of the others just iconic uh, dance moments in, in a movie that I wasn't expecting it to happen at all. Um, I vaguely remembered like, oh, I think this was in a trailer or something, but it was just like a piece of it. And I had I had not been watching uh, anything leading up to it. So it caught me by surprise and really, really enjoyed it. While we're here in general thoughts still, I think it's it's important to address too that as with the book, I don't think this film's going to be for everyone. I think that on a visual level, everyone can can engage with it and think that it's incredible. But just based on the premise, I think it's a hard ask, even even in the film. And I think that there there's a quite a bit of sexuality explore, explored in this film. And um, I can absolutely see that being something that people bounce off of. And just in general, if a filmmaker uh, kind of pushing the envelope in those areas, maybe something that that um, feels like it's uh, gratuitous in some cases, this that, that might be the case. And I have seen online uh in doing research for for all of this that there's you know some cr critics are mixed but i've seen mostly positive reviews i've also seen some say that this is like an attempt at a feminist film and an attempt at, at having a message like kind of wanting to tell a certain message with this and not quite landing it we noticed this last week with the fact that that novel is written by alistair gray who's a man and he kind of tries to lampshade it with the fact that like he's doing this nested narrative and then there's some female characters commenting on it and everything like that. Check out that episode if you want to hear more about that. But um, this film loses kind of some of those layers. And so I have seen some some people feeling like this is um, like they they wanted more from it as far as like a full spectrum of what they they want to see from like um, a female empowerment film. I was especially happy at the end to see that Emma Stone was a producer on the film, so I have to assume she was heavily involved with with some of the say in her character and sort of what went on. But there is going to be controversy with this film, and and like I I think that's worth addressing. Is that is that something that you guys felt, or or did it land squarely for you? Yeah. So when I read the book and I watched the movie afterwards, after I filmed my video, I saw other people complaining or critiquing or having issues with uh, Bella's mental maturity, and how they just felt that it was. Like they felt gross about it basically. And that didn't even occur to me like to be bothered by that. And I think partly because the way it's set up in both book and movie is just so fantastical, right? Like it's not realistic. And so to be bothered by that, I it didn't even occur to me be, to be bothered. But afterwards, I've seen a lot of people complain about that aspect. Yeah, it, it, we uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, I, I, I mentioned the born sexy yesterday trope uh, that, that this sort of embodies in, in many ways, but I think it does something interesting with it. Um, and uh, I have similar feelings about this movie as I did to the book where it's like, for the most part, I think it's working. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know that the movie necessarily handles it so much, like, much better with the caveat of it does feel more focused on her. Part of it, I think is also like, there's a lot of sex in this movie. There's so much that it's like you can't sort of ignore it. And it happens early when her mental maturity is very young. It's making you think about it. It's asking you to think about it. Um, and it's putting it in your face. And um, I, I do think a lot of people are going to have that response of like, oh, I, 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 this is making me uncomfortable. I don't know why, why there's so much. I don't know why we're focusing on this so much. But I think it, it is sort of core to the story that both uh, Alistair Gray and Yorgos Lanthimos here are wanting to tell. Um, and that's uh, this rapid maturation 
between um it's like a difference in maturation between the mind and the body right so just the premise is this young mind in an adult body and how that would immediately create a lot of problems and playing that out to its logical conclusion and and, and saying like we're gonna take this to a place where because this is never like this has never happened not in this quite this way so it's like how would this even happen how would this play out i don't know i'm trying not to spoil anything too specific yeah. but um well, maybe we can I, revisit this because I have more to say, but I guess what I'm, I'm, I'll just try and put some sort of a bow on my point I'm trying to make here. <laughs> the point that's trying to be made is that her mental maturity, not matching her physical age, creates this really strange dynamic with her sexuality. And the men around her definitely take advantage of that. And it takes the process of the film for her to learn about life and to learn about what it means to be a woman and to be sexual for her to like uh, catch up to where she's been like and to like understand what's happened to her and to understand everything she's been doing and i do think this movie is fairly sex positive in the sense that it's like not being judgmental about it yeah so i guess i'll leave it there i, I don't know i still feel like i'm pretty not clear about this but <laughs> we'll get there we'll um, get there we'll get there I, I think the other part of the story is that this this is clearly someone who is being perceived at a certain age, being perceived as an adult, and how that person may act in the world not having the baggage that society puts on everyone, and specifically in terms of Bella on women and in the Victorian era. So I think like it, the way that both stories explore that uh, is is kind of where they're it's it's tongue in cheek, right? It's it's a it's a comedic for the most part, it's sort of a satire on a lot of this stuff. Um, and it's 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 more so like pointing the finger and saying like, isn't this fucked up? And shouldn't we make sure that we're all aware of this and we engage with that? Luke, you mentioned the Born Sexy yesterday, which I had heard that reference. And then in my Poor Things video, I referenced that trope. But I actually didn't even watch the pop culture detective video until like yesterday. So that was my first time actually watching his video. And yeah, I thought both the book and movie, obviously when the book was written, that wasn't a term, but it was definitely a trope at that point. Yeah. And I thought both book and movie just showed that trope so well and like seeing her progress to the point where she's just like, because in that video, Pop Culture Detective, he says how the point of the trope is that it makes the average guy feel special because this girl who's so dumb doesn't like the average guy is impressive to her. But obviously over the course of the story, Belle is just like, why did I, what did I ever see in you, Duncan? <laughs> and just, I just thought they did it so well. Yeah. So like uh, James was saying, like at the start when they're taking advantage of her, like, yeah, it's upsetting, but maybe also with the movie, I knew where they were going to go with it. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to move into talking about Yorgos Lanthimos now before we get into plot and then we'll talk spoilers and we can blow this whole thing open. So Yorgos Lanthimos is a Greek filmmaker. He's received numerous accolades, including a BAFTA Film Award and a Golden Globe Award, as well as nominations for six Academy Awards. Since 1995, he has directed TV commercials, music videos, short films, and experimental theater plays. He was also a member of the creative team that designed the opening and closing ceremonies of the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens. Lanthimos's early films include My Best Friend, Kaneda, and Dogtooth. The latter won the Uncertain Regard Prize at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 83rd Academy Awards. 
In 2015, he began to transition from Greek language to English language films. He received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for The Lobster. The film was selected to compete for the Palme d'Or at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival and won the jury prize. Chris Nashawate of Entertainment Weekly praised the film, saying that Lanthimos's films aren't for everyone. They're deadpan and almost clinically detached. At times, they feel like dispatches from a distant alien planet. He also received nominations for the Academy Award for Best Director and Best Picture for both The Favorite and Poor Things. Lanthimos has been credited as a part of the postmodern film movement known as the Greek Weird Wave. His films Kaneta, Dogtooth, and Alps are greatly influenced by his Greek heritage. Similarly, his English language films The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer continue to investigate similar thematic issues. Um, in reference to Greek Weird Wave, it is a, a type of film that involves haunting cinematography, alienated protagonists, and absurdist dialogue. It's kind of his style and some of his background. I mentioned before, I, I think that he has come on the scene in such a such a unique way. I've seen Dogtooth, uh, The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Favorite, and now Poor Things. Um, they're working together again. Emma Stone and Yorgos Lanthimos are working on a film. It's actually in post-production. They've already shot it. It's supposed to come out in the next few years called Kinds of Kindness. Um, hmm. So they're they're getting together for the third time. And I mean, with the, the uh, praise that this film is getting so far, I think that that's going to be at the top of everyone's list uh, coming out in the next couple of years. Did you guys see a lot of these themes? And, and what do you think of Yorgos Lanthimos uh, as a filmmaker, knowing all that now? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I did see The Lobster and I remember I liked it. And so I remember thinking like he was someone that I was going to like pay attention to. But I was kind of not paying attention to movies that came out for a few years there. So a lot of them I ended up not seeing, <laughs> but yeah, I, I tend to like that kind of style, which I've heard of Dogtooth. That one sounds like it might be a bit too disturbing for my taste, but oh, it's, yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. But I definitely enjoy like the weird, absurdist, surreal movies. Um, and then the lobster definitely has some dark elements too, but yeah, so I, I tend to like movies like that for the most part. It's cool he's partnering with Emma Stone again, too. So that's exciting. I didn't know that. The Lobster notably has a lot of like sexual things. It's like kind of based around the fa sexuality in general. And, and um, it's it's a wild one, Luke. Just just so you know, they like <laughs> threaten to turn people into animals, basically. Um, but right. that's I don't think that's too much of a spoiler to say. Uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, he's a filmmaker that I need to check out more of. Um, I've only seen poor things now. <laughs> so this is my first, you know, foray into his stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those filmmakers that unapologetically draws your attention to the fact that you're watching a movie. Mm -hmm. There was like very few times in this where I was able to um, sort of forget I'm watching a movie and just, you know, f fall into the story. And like. I like that kind of stuff. I'm cool with it. I, I, it's not going to be for everybody, right? Like it's it's just very attention grabbing um, from choice of lens to, uh, you know, everything in the background looking surreal and strange to character choices to um, going from in, in and out from black and white and use of color. Um, everything about it, like the score itself even is this strange. Um, it starts out like incredibly discordant and, and sparse and then it starts to sort of form into more of a coherent store score as it yeah. goes but it still re retains a certain level of discordance and, and and strangeness to it that draws attention to it it's like it's not the score that just is on in the background like you're noticing it and i would say too it, it's like jarring and almost like 
uh, a horror like thriller theme at first right like it's like it comes in as like these strings and and like loud loud percussion and everything like that that's like just like so in your face when this film was being developed it began in 20, 2009 and Lanthimos went to Scotland to discuss poor things with Alistair Gray and you know they were discussing acquisition of the rights to the novel Lanthimos said quote he was a very lovely man Unfortunately, he died just a couple of years before we actually made the film, but he was very special and energetic. He was 80 something when we met. And as soon as I got there, he had seen Dogtooth and said, quote, I had my friend put on the DVD because I don't know how to operate these things. But I think you're very talented, young man. Lanthimos <laughs> said Gray took him on a personal tour of Glasgow where Gray showed Lanthimos several places that he had incorporated into the story. And I think this is interesting to talk about and think of here because People have rightfully noted it's seated in London now. Why did he? Cha why did Lanthimos change it from Glasgow to London when it was so inherent to the story? And I'm kind of puzzled on it still. I'm not it's sure. It's a why. little frustrating. Yeah, I think it's because the familiarity of London would be my guess, but I, I think that goes against a bit of the heart of what Alistair Gray was trying to do. Yeah, I definitely saw a lot of complaints about that as well, especially since he's like you guys talked about in the last episode. He's one of the biggest writers from Scotland, right? And that you said they yeah. have murals and stuff. So the fact that it's just not mentioned at all. I would also point out that now I'm curious to see if you two caught it, especially Laura, since you've seen it twice now. Um, I never saw the adapted by or adapted from like oh, I uh, did. Yeah, I credit. Saw it. it is in there. Okay. Is it at the start or at the end or was it prominent? It, it could be at the beginning, but I know for sure it's at the end. I didn't see it at the at the beginning. I think yeah. is where I really notice its absence. Did you do you remember seeing it, Laura? I don't, but they had the credits like lining the screen. That's true. And I wasn't really yeah. paying attention to what it said. So I bet it's in there because it's it's but it's just not very prominent. And I would have liked it to be a little more prominent. I, I, I appreciate it when, you know, we make it clear what we're adapting because so much of this movie owes, owes to the book. And it's like it's a shame when that gets lost. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think people sometimes don't know. Um, and especially now that he's passed away, I almost feel like you should you should even lean into it more because he's not here to advocate for himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I do know that like through my reading, he feels that Lanthimos feels that Gray gave his blessing on quite a few things. And actually, like from from people close to Gray that are still around, supposedly this is just kind of the rumor mill at this point so we don't know for sure but it sounds like they had already like they had discussed this the possible situation of changing glasgow to london and the story for the adaptation um and maybe that was with his blessing or he understood it at least mm. but that's kind of like reading tea leaves and trying to figure out you know he said she said kind of thing so while filming the favorite lanthimos revisited the project and he began discussing it with emma stone that that movie came out in 2018 for for timeline context um, Lanthimos began developing it more actively following the success of The Favorite. He said, quote, after the relative success of The Favorite, where I actually made a slightly more expensive film that was successful, people were more inclined to allow me to do whatever it is that I wanted. So I just went back to Gray's book and said, this is what I want to do. It was a long process, but the book was always on my mind. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't want to come off like I'm saying this is um, not a good adaptation, because <laughs> I think it is actually a pretty good one. Um, I just, I, you know, it's more just about crediting. I think uh, it's like a small sticking point. But I actually think even with the change, um, which I do find a little frustrating, um, when we talk a lot about adaptations, we talk about transferring mediums. 
And this goes from the written word into the visual form here. And I think the the flair for the absurdist and surreal that he brings to it um, is a great way to translate the ambiguity and strangeness of the book. Um, yeah, I don't know. What did you think as far, as far as as an adaptation, Laura? Again, there's like one spoiler detail that I just really okay. wish they included. And it was so vital to the book. But aside from that, I did think it was a great adaptation. So even with my complaints, well, and even as I say that, I feel like, again, that detail was critical to the book. So in some ways, it's it docks it a few points as far as adaptation goes, because there's something from the book that just really should have been in the movie. But that aside, we'll revisit that as soon as we get to the spoiler section. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm curious to hear about that. But yeah, I thought he did a great job bringing it to life. And and again, I thought everyone was just so well cast. And then also Godwin, like the way he looked and they just brought that again, brought that to life so well. And overall, a really solid adaptation. Those special effects were were incredible on his face, right? Like that you could yeah. tell how long it took them to put those prosthetics on and look so real and like, um, I don't know. At first it was so jarring. And I was like, oh my God, this is like hard to look at. And then by the end, I was like, he's, he, they did a really good job of, of kind of keying in on Baxter being more of a fatherly figure. And uh, by the end, I was like, this is, this guy's, I don't know, something about his look is going to stick with me for a long time. Yeah. And like the mechanism he uses to eat and just all of that. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. They really leaned into that uh, Frankenstein's monster type uh, look that he, he had. It, it, that was referenced in the book, um, but it was always kind of like, undercut by some other things that happen. Um, so it was always like, is this actually how he looked? I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, here they really leaned into it and they made this guy like pretty bizarre looking. Yeah. I like to see actors work with filmmakers and then kind of get involved in all aspects because that's really what a producer is doing, right? Like they're, they're involved from well before the film starts filming until into post-production and beyond. And then, and then the delivery of the final film. Um, so um Lanthimos mentioned like he felt that having Stone on as a, as a producer was such an advantage because they had that mutual trust built up. And then Stone discussed uh, how the process was different from the favorite. She said, quote, it was so interesting to be involved in how the film was being pieced together from cast to, to department heads to what have you. Ultimately, Yorgos was the one making those decisions, but I was very involved in the process, which started during the pandemic. We were reaching out to people and casting and everything during that time because we couldn't go anywhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like to think that like, maybe we're going to see Yorgos take Emma Stone under his wing and possibly in the future, if she wants to, she could, she would have the experience to direct her own films. I want to talk about the look of the film because clearly like we, we were gushing about the visuals and, and just kind of the surreal nature of it all. So starting out, I watched a video with Robbie Ryan, who is the cinematographer and he talked about quite a few things. One of the some of the major things I'll start with is he talked about influences, specifically Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, was a huge inspiration for this film. Um, ev everyone was like had to watch the movie, and it was it was referred to often. Other films that served as general influences were Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's Black Narcissus, Fred Federico Fellini's And the Ship Sails On, and several films by Roy Anderson. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos likes sort of naturalistic looks in his scenes as far as lighting is concerned. And um, a lot of times when they film, he doesn't like like lights on set. If you've ever seen behind the scenes stuff, there's often lights all over the place. Kind of some, some of the time they're even close to the actors to get certain looks. Um, 
for this, Yorgos Lanthimos apparently likes all of the, the lighting to be pretty much like practical. So he was talking about the scene in the in the ballroom. There's a big skylight above that they're pumping light into. And then everything else in the room is practical lights. Like you can look around and they have lights on the walls and lights on the tables and things like that, candles. And um, having that was part of the process of having it be sort of a um, very freeing filming experience so the crew could move around and they don't have to worry about where the lighting is at and resetting as much. Um, and I'm sure it takes an incredible amount of planning to get a room set up to be well lit like that. And there's probably some bounce boards and things like that to, to get certain highlights. But overall, to have that sort of flexibility on scenes like that and that that knowing that that's the way that Yorgos Lanthimos likes to shoot, that means that he's really um, wanting to not intrude on the actor's performances. Right. He wants them to be able to feel free to move around, to do anything they want to do. Um, and I, I just think that's really cool to note when you think about a film like this, because it feels so meticulous and, and it is in a sense but allowing for the freedom i think is is a good um middle ground right to be able to know exactly what you want to see in camera but also w collaborate with your actors and performers in that way and you know uh crew the way that they shot this film was also on film they shot it on codex 35 millimeter ectochrome color reversal and it was apparently the first to be partially shot on this new version of of this ectochrome uh, film stock. So I thought that was pretty cool to note. I think you can look at the film and see how saturated some of the colors are and how vibrant it is. And that that owes partially to that. And then from what he said, they took the look from the ectochrome, kind of reverse engineered it for everything else that they shot with different stock. Um, so that that's kind of where the look came about and they they pushed it in that way. Um, nerding out on the the obviously like aesthetic of some of the look there's like the the focus i'm sure you guys realize there's it's called bokeh when you see that like shallow depth of field and there's kind of those aberrations and if if there was close-ups on characters you could almost notice like circular lines in the background like surrounding them did it, either you see that mm -hmm. yeah so so that has to do with like lensing choices and like there are times that you can add um like diopters and things like that to to make focus look a little different with these lenses but Again, like Luke said, this is a film that's kind of calling attention to the fact that it's a film. And I always think it's fun to do that because part of it is like it's extreme. It's in your face. It's heightening those emotions is making it feel awkward and weird or just like hyper, hyper realistic or surreal. Um, but also, like, I think for people who they, they can just look at that and say there's something different about that. People who maybe aren't aren't as familiar with what goes into creating an image like that and say that's something different that's doing something and I think that's ultimately the goal is to like even subliminally do something to the audience to kind of push them in the direction emotionally where, where you want them to go. So I, I thought that was really fun. And then notably, the other one is the vignetted, uh, the vignetted lensing that they used, which was when extremely wide fisheye lenses were being used. And then there would also be the, the kind of black circle or I guess the, the circle surrounded by black in the screen. And uh, that is done just by having a really wide lens and shooting on a, a different like a lens maybe that's for a 65 or 70 millimeter film and then they're shooting it on 35 so so it's typically made for a larger a larger um, film stock but it is being shot on a smaller one so you're getting some of that blackness on the edges and typically it's a bad thing like if you see that and it's not intended you're like oh no we're getting vignetting we need to figure out how to fix this here 
Um, but it, it's you could tell every time they wanted to use that in the film, Yorgos Lanthimos and, and um, Robbie Ryan, they were just like cranking it up to 11, the scene. Anytime that shot came up, you were just like, oh, my God, we're we're off the rails now. This is crazy. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, definitely really cool. And like I said, I I've never seen any movie that sh- that switches up the camera lenses that much. And it's interesting, too, because I feel like in today's day and age, you often hear about how people don't have the same attention span. And so like YouTube videos or movies will have all these fast cuts or they need all these action scenes. And so I don't know if this had anything to do with his intention, but it's also a good way to keep people's attention, I would think too, right? If you're constantly switching up the style. I mean, definitely. Anytime that you can kind of engage with an audience. And and again, this this whole movie is kind of like on a meta level, tongue in cheek kind of uh pointing to the messages of the film and then also saying like how crazy does this look right now how wild is this um so yeah i appreciate it for those things and i think i think every viewer probably does as well whether they realize exactly why or not some at least some of the time i'd have to watch it again you know i've just seen it the once um but i felt like those condensed is what i'd call them uh, where like some part of the screen was not visible whether that was because yeah. it was blacked out or it was because it was distorted um, it made me feel like the the perspective of um, Emma Stone's character here, Bella Baxter, um, was constricted in a way. It's like it, it reflected her limited point of view and her limited experience in the world. Um, and it, it, it so it had like that uh, resonance with the story and what was going on. Um, I don't know if that holds true throughout. I'd have to watch it again. But <laughs> I, often it felt like they were trying to imply that like she can't perceive the world fully in these moments. Sure. And that's what I love about great art, right? Interpretive. It's like yeah. whether they intentionally did that or not, you got that from from those scenes. So, you know, I love that. In today's day and age, everything is about, uh, just to give you guys like kind of the technical look, everything's about sharpness. The most expensive lenses and the best things in the world, they're, they're going to give, they're fast lenses, meaning that you, you can open up the iris really wide. You get a super sharp image. And in today's day and age of talking about AI taking everybody's jobs and all of these there that's gonna it's gonna create it's gonna take away art and all art is gonna be done through AI I think it's cool to see what can be perceived as imperfections in filmmaking and, and just art in general being the things that are human and being the things that are like evoking humanity and yeah maybe you can train an AI eventually but whatever the point is currently uh, all the things that are expensive that you would think look amazing and perfect in every way aren't necessarily the things that filmmakers are leaning into to tell their stories. Like the imperfections are what are what are interesting to people and why is it different and why is it unique and how does it serve the story? So you can have the best, most shallow depth of field shot in the world that's super sharp, but if it's not done for a, for a specific purpose, uh, it might not have impact. And then also on that note, you could have a like just a really gritty, I often think about like the new the new Batman that came out with uh, Robert Pattinson, they were like, it looks like they just took like grime and dirt and just like smeared it into the lens and get, got it all like imperfect. And that's kind of the point I wanted to make there is I like seeing this kind of like daring, uh, bold kind of filmmaking that's that's uh, showing you something that you haven't seen before. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. Like you just said, the vignette lens usually is a bad thing. <laughs> so the fact that he's doing it on purpose, yeah. It's all about intentionality. Uh, I look for that in the writers that I enjoy, in the films that I enjoy. Um, yeah, these things are done for a reason and trying to suss out what it is, um, but it shows that human touch. Um, it's not just done randomly, and that's what AIs do. So that could be a whole separate episode we could do <laughs> on AI because I have lots of thoughts. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think at the very least, 
highlighting the human touch uh, behind these choices and the intention. It's not just unrandom, um, but the intention is what makes it important. What makes it interesting ultimately to me. Uh, so now if you're ready, let's let's move into the plot here and we can just talk spoilers uh, for finally <laughs> for the film. So in Victorian London, the medical student Max McCandless becomes an assistant to the eccentric surgeon Godwin Baxter. He falls in love with Godwin's ward, Bella, a childlike young woman. Max learns that a pregnant woman named Victoria killed herself by leaping off a bridge, and Godwin replaced her brain with that of an unborn fetus, giving the infant Bella an adult's body. With Godwin's encouragement, Max asks for Bella's hand in marriage. Bella accepts, but as her intelligence rapidly develops, she becomes curious about the outside world and herself. By exploring her own body, she discovers masturbation and sexual pleasure. She runs off with Duncan Wedderburn, a debauched lawyer whom Baxter hired to overhaul the nuptial contract. Deciding to let her go, Godwin starts a new experiment with a young woman, Felicity, who matures much more slowly than Bella. I thought Godwin, he's an interesting character in both book and movie, and he's also very different in some ways because in the book, Godwin makes Bella to be his companion, whereas in the movie, he doesn't have that intention at all. But then also in the movie, Godwin is more restrictive with Bella, not wanting her to go outside and not wanting her to do this or that. Whereas in the book, he takes her on like a tour of the world early on. And, and then also, I thought it's interesting too how in the movie, um, his dad was like a an abusive scientist who treated him like an experiment, but how Godwin, he doesn't see it that way. And in, instead he's like, you know, my father, uh, like he admires him like when they have Felicity and he's very cold with her and Max is like, I mean, you're being pretty harsh. And he's like, my father knew that you have to be cold. Like that's the best way to do it. And because he loved me, he treated me this way. And so the fact that he has such a distorted view of love in the movie, I thought was interesting. Yeah. Notably like they, we, I think in the, in the book, it's very clear that, that Alistair Gray is playing with the Frankenstein story and he, he clearly is here as well, but we assumed, or at least I did, in the book that he was sort of brought back in a similar kind of way to Bella. But knowing here that it was like he seemed to have, maybe he wasn't brought back, maybe he was just a, a child who was then experimented on. And that's why he's ended up in the scenario he's in. So less Frankenstein and more just like tortured, yeah, abused child yeah. or something. Yeah, in the book, it definitely came across like it was heavily implied that he was a creation of the scientist. But... Yeah, I thought Godwin here he kind of made more sense as a character and the the idea that he could do this what he does is so, is pretty awful right and like the way he treats her is awful the way they constructed the character in the movie i believed would behave in the way that he does um in a way that uh, i think works pretty well here so i liked some of those subtle changes i do think there was definitely an imprisonment element of it that was played with throughout how she is she starts the the movie off imprisoned by by godwin um, and so it works to, for that change, right? And she has to escape. And she escapes at the same time that she explores her sexuality with uh, Wedderburn, um, but then like quickly outpaces him and outgrows him. And, and all of a sudden he's not enough um, because he himself has like very selfish reasons for what he's doing. Um, and then he starts to try and own her uh, with his own romantic interest, right? And that becomes something else that she has to escape. Um, and then throughout, she's escaping and escaping time and again. Um, and and even at the end, we see her uh, return to another form of imprisonment, which we can talk about. But um, I felt like that was definitely like a main thing he was trying to get across was 
her breaking free of confinement, whether that be societal or sexual or physically being confined, um, having to do that time and again. Bella comes up and says, like, I I'm forgetting the exact dialogue, but she says, like, I'll hate you forever or something. She gets in his face and she says, if you don't let me leave, I'll hate you forever. And him realizing and making the decision and saying, like, oh, yeah, she's she's gone. We have to let her go. And, and that's in that way, kind of fatherly. And, you know, you have to let the the, you know, children fly the nest kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, that felt like the, that moment for for him, even if he wanted to to keep her keep her at the house for all that time and yeah. he was very controlling of her it was like the way. first likable thing he did in the movie because <laughs> at that point he hadn't done much right well and also when he tells max i want you to marry bella on one condition and he's like oh that bella agrees and he's like okay two conditions <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah very funny well, clearly uh, consent is not something he's he thinks about a lot i mean exactly <laughs> look at the experiments he's doing with these animals like this isn't a guy who's very ethical i think it's safe to say but then again, going back to his childhood, like you said, it makes sense in the movie that he would be the way he is. Yeah. And thinking about this early part of the film, it's in black and white, notably. And uh, it's it's very striking when it changes to color. And I think it's a cool juxt juxtaposition because it's showing like that limited something limited in, in the perception of the character at that point. Um, and again, just to talk about Emma Stone's performance, like she had the mannerisms down perfectly for a young child. Like I yeah. couldn't believe how well it was done. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some really wild stuff that happens. She's just like pissing on the ground or whatever. Um, she punches Candlest in the face and she's like blood and they're like blood. <laughs> she's like saying it wrong. And he's like, no blood. That's, that's blood. So some really funny stuff. It, and then it, I, I still feel like it's weird. I, I have to talk about this. McCandless seeing her like pissing herself and then like soon after he's like carrying her up and then he like her blouse is open or whatever and then he's like I'm like man this is fucked up dude like I don't care how you slice it it's weird that that he is attracted to her at that point I know she's in an adult's body but it's weird um and uh yeah I think they do a better job with McCandless like like kind of uh eventually along their relationship how he he kind of uh isn't as it doesn't seem he's as controlling as he, as he maybe seemed in the book or as uh predatory but um so so that was a nice change but ultimately like it, it's still just like such a that's a hurdle and i know that some people are gonna they're gonna run into that one yeah she had just been throwing a, a temper tantrum like a toddler <laughs> and he knows like he knows what i mean I think at this point he knows her origin or at the very least he's guessed at it so it's not like he can claim ignorance to it, right? Um, yeah, and and um, I think that's the, that's the movie and the story in general forcing us to think about how uh, there is this phenomenon where men will be attracted to that kind of thing. Um, and it makes us uncomfortable to see it displayed in this way, but um, I think it's touching on a, like a very real subject here. Yeah. And speaking of like the masturbatory scenes and everything too, like the the way that we don't know, right? Growing up, like a child doesn't know what what's right and wrong. And then just seeing a child exploring themselves in the body of a woman yeah. is just so like it feels so wrong. And it's like that whole scene played out in a really funny way and just like shocking um, with the the I'm forgetting the other character's name, but she's like the, the fruit scene that yeah. you guys are very aware of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, and I do think it's interesting, too, how, like, she has an adult body. Like, she has the body of her mother, 
but then the brain of her child. And I think it's interesting too, because even though she has the brain of a child, like she has an adult body and the body holds its own memories and instincts. And so I do think that dynamic, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. In my video, I said how she was both mother and child, which Godwin tells her that right in the end, not to jump ahead, but he says how you're both mother and child. And someone in the comments was like, but she's not the mother. Someone in the comments on one of, on my video, they were like, but she's not the mother. Like she's just the child. But I think people underestimate just the power of the body, you know, and the body holds its own memories. And so, yeah, I just think that's really interesting to think about. And putting us in an uncomfortable scenario in a situation thinking that way, uh, mm -hmm. I think is the point. And whether or not it's memories, um, if that's the, if that's a phrase that people would bump up against, um, it's definitely, you know, like the, the body chemistry, um, the, the maturation of the body um, is going to have a very different effect. And it's and it's an adult. It's an adult body that's gone through puberty, and so it's going to have a different set of stimulus than an actual child would. Um, and you know that is is automatically creating a situation that is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And you know it's it's that fun, you know, science fiction thing where we're trying to like imagine what it would be like if this could actually happen. Um, and it just happens to be in an area that's very taboo and very socially uh, fraught to discuss. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. And also in that um, pop culture detective video, he uses like the term he uses to describe this trope is it's a woman who is obviously very beautiful, but also he says something like incredibly naive and yet very wise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, and we get that with Bella where she talks like a child and yet there's other times where she'll use these big words or say something so profound and parts where Duncan is like, what? Like you don't know what a banana is and yet you know what empirically means? Like what is going on here? I also love that that kind of reflected her relationship with her father, right? Like empirically is a word that she would hear thrown around from Baxter. Yeah. Uh, so moving forward with the plot here, Bella and Duncan embark on a grand journey, starting in Lisbon, where they have frequent sex. When Bella becomes difficult for him to control, Duncan smuggles her onto a cruise ship. Bella befriends the passengers Martha and Harry, who open her mind to philosophy. Duncan attempts to stunt her growth to no avail. He becomes exasperated and indulges in drinking and gambling. During a stop at Alexandria, Bella witnesses the suffering of the poor and becomes distraught. She entrusts Duncan's winnings to unscrupulous members of the crew who falsely promise to give it to the needy. Unable to afford the rest of the trip, Bella and Duncan are dropped at Marseille and make their way to Paris. Seeking money and accommodation, Bella begins working at a brothel. Duncan, enraged, has a breakdown and Bella abandons him. At the brothel, she comes under the tutelage of Madame Swiney and befriends another prostitute, Toinette who introduces her to socialism. Godwin, now terminally ill, asks Max to bring Bella to him. Max locates her after tracking down Duncan, who has been institutionalized. In London, Bella reconciles with Godwin and renews her plans to marry Max. So I think we got to talk about Duncan Wedderburn. Um, I, I, he was a character that I was paying a lot more attention to this time through the story, I mean, compared to the book, um, because he, he represents like an interesting, I don't know, force in her life. Because I was really thinking about how this child uh, Bella Baxter is rapidly progressing through phases of life in this movie. She's flying through them. And um, I think a lot of us often do have a, a, an early romance that we outgrow. And he represents that for her. I think it's saying something in both versions of the story that this man who at first is just completely smitten with her, 
um, starts to become <laughs> driven mad. And, and it's really just because she starts to mature and she starts to uh, push back on the restrictions that he's putting onto her. She starts to explore other you know, people in other places. And he immediately is, you know, the, what he does is he tries to imprison her essentially. And he takes her on this ship, but the whole point is to keep her from wandering off. Um, and then, yeah, the fact that he's like driven mad by it to where he's like literally losing, like pulling out his hair by the end and in a, in a straight jacket. Um, I, I think that's definitely trying to say something about uh, just the act of outgrowing him. Um and, and what it does to this man. I don't know. Thoughts on thoughts on Wedderburn, Laura? Well, I thought the scene was really interesting when he, like, there's a couple scenes where it's like literally showing a phrase we use where like we put people in a box and he literally has her get in a box, right? Because <laughs> yes. he doesn't want her to be, you know, her full self and he's trying to control her and put her in a box and be like, this is who I want you to be and I'm going to force you to be that person. But yeah, it is interesting too, because you can definitely, like when he first interacts with Bella, you can definitely see why she likes him, right? Because, you know, everybody keeps telling her no. And then finally some guy who shows up, who's like, you know, I don't care about polite society. And I really enjoyed their scenes when they're just traveling in Lisbon. And then the dance scene, of course, was great. Let's talk about what makes that so great. Because um, to me, it, it actually visually kind of mirrored what I'm just talking about, uh, was just talking about with their relationship. She starts off the dance by just like walking away from him. And then he's sort of kind of chasing her around and like trying to get her to dance with him. And she keeps turning away. Um, but then she's also like all just like herky jerky and, and her doing these weird body motions. Um, it's also kind of a fight. Like the music is very discordant and strange. Um, it, it's such a, a bizarre, surreal moment, um, but I loved it because of that. And, and I think it does sort of mirror the story they're trying to tell there. Yeah. And I feel like Duncan represents just like pure excess, right? Like he is in every way, like the sex excess, the drinking, the eating, the, the way that he approaches life. And then she sees that and it's like a kid with candy, right? Like you just eat so much of it and then you make yourself sick. I think that's like kind of what she's getting out of Duncan and eventually realizes like, oh, this is kind of making me sick. I want to see what else life has to offer. Um, and then, yeah, this this dancing scene, it's like all just like raw expression. It's all expression. She's just whatever she is feeling, she's doing in the dance. And then Duncan's trying to say, no, this is how you dance here. Grab on. And he's trying to like show her how to dance. And then she's like, no. And like, man, it makes for the funniest dance scene in a long time that I've seen. Uh, and then, yeah, the way that they shoot that, there's there's the moment they sit down, too, that I have to talk about. She sits, sits down and this, the, she starts going like with the one eye, she starts winking a little <laughs> bit. And then there's the guy across the way who's winking at her. Duncan just freaks out again, just like man of excess, runs over and just starts fighting this guy. And that's another scene where they use that really vignetted uh, camera wide, wide angle shot. Um, and they're like following around and there's the fight and then it kind of turns into more of a dance. And um, yeah, I just it, it's Mark Ruffalo absolutely kills this role. Like, I, I think the two of them, Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo, all of their sex scenes, like, you know, that it was must have been hilarious on set as well. Just like the way knowing like them outside of their roles, like seeing them in interviews and everything. Um, I, I just have to assume this was like a lot of a lot of fun to make. And yeah, I, Duncan is such an interesting character, like you said, Laura, with the whole like putting her in a box, trying to contain her. And then, like you said, Luke, by the end, how that like she can't be contained, like she mm -hmm. she isn't. Uh, I think that's that's a cool message that the story has. And and uh, ultimately, like, you know, 
there there are absolutely people that that are like Duncan out there. So you know, good to to poke fun when we can. And then also when getting into the ship. I loved the movie change how we have in the book. It's like these two guys, Jeepa friends, and they like tell her about the world. And in the movie, one of them is a woman named Martha. And I thought she was a fantastic character. Like I would have loved to have seen even more with her, but the part where Duncan wants to throw her overboard and just her reaction to that and just <laughs> how, you know, she and Astley just helping open Bella's mind. And when he keeps throwing the books overboard and she just gives <laughs> Bella another one. And yeah, that, she was a fantastic character. So good. What was her line too? She said something about um, he, he stalked all, all around the ship to find her. And then she's like, I'd never thought I'd I'd die in such an exciting way or, or something like that. I never envisioned I'd be murdered or something like that. It was really funny. Yeah. But yeah, and I love the ship scene because, you know, we have, I mean, a lot of things happen on the ship, but, and yeah, and just seeing Duncan as he gets grumpier and grumpier and Bella just, she hasn't really felt these negative emotions, but suddenly she's like, oh, like Duncan is suddenly bringing out like all of these hateful emotions in me that I don't want to feel. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sort of annoyed by him as well. Um, I did want to note too before we move on from from some of the uh, the look of the city Lisbon and then and then into this ship scene, um, the the design of of all of the set work is like so like almost like Hoovian. Like it's like it's like uh, <laughs> I don't know the the like everything has weird proportions and the colors palettes strange. Um, and the way that that, again, kind of evokes Bella seeing the world outside of her home for the first time, I, I think is very cool. And then something else that's striking to me is like the the costuming, this like giant puffy shoulder thing that she's wearing with the, sh the kind of shorter shorts. And then the sunglasses that she puts on are so cool looking. And and we've we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but it's almost like an alternate world. Like it's like a Elseworlds kind of thing where it's like steampunk slash technology developed in a different path yeah kind of thing they're on these like gondolas and like there's blimps and all this stuff yeah such a cool look and and i did note uh multiple times where they were clearly on like a volume led wall kind of thing where they would come up with, to, with a practical set and then that would be providing lighting and also the backdrop and just how like that can display motion like when they're on the ship you can tell that like the waves are, are coming and crashing in and i heard uh lanthimos talk about that as well and how like the only VFX and like there's minimal VFX in the movie because so much of it is practical. And even those LED walls give you that freedom to where it's practically there and you don't have to have an, an, an animator go in and, and add in all these effects. And there's some layering stuff they'll do to like add some like mist coming from the ocean and extend out backdrops and things like that where there might be green screen when the LED wall ends. But uh, I definitely noted that as well. Such such a cool uh, creative way to to show like you can be anywhere in the world in a volume. Or you can be in some surreal, crazy alternate world that has like pink clouds and it's always perpetually like golden hour sunset kind of thing. It's cool. Yeah, that was really neat. It was used to great effect, too, because um, th that you're talking about being like so saturated and seeing the surreal, the surreal sky. And I think it did represent her sort of awe and wonder at the world. Um, and I, I noticed that as the movie progressed, especially once she went to the brothel and then beyond that, um, like the color palette started to shift 
we started to get a little bit more realism. I was noticing like puddles were on the ground when she was back in London. It looked a little more gritty. Um, there was still a bit of it. Like it didn't completely dispense with it. Like there was still like a, a certain surreality to the entire movie. Um, but I just, yeah, I felt like the color palette started to shift and it seemed like she was perceiving the world in a more realist way. Um, and you lose a bit of that color and wonder. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought that was, that was really effective and it sort of, again, mirrored her journey. Um, one more thing to say about, uh, Wetterburn before she leaves him behind. Um, he, I think he represented freedom to her when he came to take her away and to get her out of that house. Um, and then, you know, freedom to explore sexuality. She loved that about him. She, he took her somewhere interesting. He took her out to see the world, but then quickly she realizes she like finds the edges of that freedom and starts bumping up against them. And um, she f figures out quickly that she's in a new prison. Um, and then she has to break free of that. And then uh, he doesn't have any introspection about it. Uh, that is because I think it's ultimately not his story, but like that was the frustrating thing about him, even though like, I think we're having Ruffalo made him a little bit more likable just because Ruffalo's a likable guy. So I like wanted to like him a little more, um, but he never takes a moment to think about like what he's done to set this up and why, he's creating this problem himself um, and how he's forcing her away in his every action. Um, but he never does that. He, and ultimately I think he's incapable of it because he's just, I don't know, not very bright. seems like to me. <laughs> and in both book and movie, he chalks it up to be like, Oh, she must be a witch. Like she's a demon. That's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So to read this final bit of plot here, the wedding is interrupted by Duncan and general Alfie Blessington, Victoria's husband. Alfie, addressing Bella as Victoria, declares that they were married before her disappearance and that he has come to reclaim her. She abandons Max to learn of her past life, but discovers Alfie's violent and sadistic nature and realizes she killed herself to escape him. Alfie confines Bella to his mansion. He threatens her at gunpoint to submit to genital mutilation, demanding she drink a sedative. She tosses the sedative in his face. After a struggle, Alfie accidentally shoots himself in the foot and then passes out from the sedative. Godwin dies peacefully with Bella and Max at his side. Bella decides to carry on Godwin's work by also becoming a surgeon with the help of Max and Toinette and transplants a goat's brain into Alfie's head. <laughs> with Alfie, I'm curious because he tells Bella because she goes to see with him, goes to stay with him to learn about herself. And he tells her how they bonded because they were both cruel and they had like a, you know, a mean sense of humor. And he says that she simply was unhappy because she hated being pregnant and she hated the baby. But do you think how much is true? Do you think that he says, like, do you think she really had been a bad person? Like, I guess. Or do you think she was just always unhappy with him? Like, I, I like to think that there's some complexity there. It's a cool yeah, idea. But at the same time, that guy's a fucking asshole. That guy sucks. <laughs> so regardless of however bad she was, he's terrible. So yeah. like, you know, yeah. It's all I don't believe of... a word he says, so I, I don't think she enjoyed that. Um, she probably went along with it to an extent, and he perceived that as her enjoying it, probably because she was terrified of him. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the movie necessarily tells us that for sure. That's just me reading into it. Um, it is really interesting, I think, here at the end, because um, she returns home. She meets her god again, um, and we are seeing a character who has gone through all the stages of life, and is now a mature woman. And she comes back and she meets McCandless again. And she's a completely different person. And he recognizes that. And um, to his credit, I guess, you know, <laughs> we want to give him any credit. He um, He's like, oh, you know, nothing that from before is binding. He's like, I was under I was under Godwin's spell. Like, I don't know why I even, you know, 
wanted to, you know, uh, propose to you. That was a ridiculous thing for me to do. So I think now he recognizes like she was a child back then and she is now not. Um, but she's like, oh, you know, if you're still into it, we could we could still explore that. Uh, you seem you seem like a decent enough guy. Um, but then she kind of um, ends up in what I would say is more of a poly relationship anyway at the end. Uh, it was the implication I got. And it didn't seem like an ownership kind of situation like you would imagine from a Victorian uh, marriage. So it seems like a, a very different situation where she's not imprisoned is what I think uh, was the main point he was trying to get across. But I think there's some other questions that uh, this this version of the story raised for me um, outside of that. But yeah, just just thoughts on the ending here and her journey to like to get into like the very end. I know in last week's episode, you guys said how you felt pretty sure like the movie will definitely have at least some layers to some extent. And the movie didn't do that at all. And that was one thing that when I saw it the first time, I kept waiting for us to see like, oh, but this was you know, the man's perspective on Bella's journey. And I kept waiting for that to happen. And then it just never does. And that was something that disappointed me because I thought that was just such a great element to the book. And it just gave it so much more depth. It was just so much more thought provoking too, seeing, you know, men telling a woman's story. And so I definitely miss that here in the movie. And again, someone commented on my video saying that Yorgos Lanthimos and Tony McNamara, the screenwriter, they kind of are the McCandless here because they're the men telling the woman's story and their male fantasy view of it. Uh, and so that's an interesting way to think about it, even though Emma Stone was a producer. But but yeah, I just really missed that aspect to the movie and was really disappointed that they didn't try to include it in some way. Yeah, and I like the the idea that if they are the McCandless in this scenario, the surreal nature of the story leads us into that idea that maybe, you know, some of these things feel like tall tales happening here. Something has been exaggerated or embellished. Like there's a possibility that that is going on. So I, I kind of like that interpretation. Uh, I definitely, I yet last week was the one who was like, yeah, there's going to be layers at least, at least one, right? I think we're going to lose the, the, the Alistair Gray kind of meta layer, but we, yeah, losing all of them was, was strange because then yeah, we're to take it at face value. And I'm like, oh, there's yeah. some some subtlety lost there. Yeah. And yeah, like you were saying earlier, how different reviews were saying how like the female empowerment message just didn't quite land for everybody. And I feel like I'm one of those people where like I enjoyed the movie and I liked it and it was very entertaining, but it didn't strike a chord with me. And I guess I wanted something more from it. And again, something more thought provoking and yeah, it just I I personally didn't feel like it totally landed some of the messages it was going for to some extent. I think maybe I liked it a bit more the second time around, but yeah, even so, I just think so much was lost. Uh, did you feel the same way in the book or did you feel like the book was kind of rounded out uh, and, and nailed that for you? I Yeah, I didn't have that complaint with the book. I thought it really handled everything really well. And even if it is written by a man, Alistair Gray, yeah, I thought he did a fantastic job and I loved the book. My biggest complaint with the book is with like some of uh, the documents that are found. I feel like the structure of it at the beginning and the end, he kind of gets carried away <laughs> with like his historical notes. So I feel like it could have been structured a little differently, but, and then the way he takes influence from, you know, Mary Shelley and HG Wells and the wedding scene was also very similar to Jane Eyre, but he does it in such a self-aware way because Bella literally writes in or Victoria saying that like clearly McCandless took ideas from this. And so, yeah, I thought Alistair Gray nailed it and I really liked the book. So cool. 
the other thing I wanted to note too before we we finished up here is like we we kind of glossed over some of the the uh, uh, time that she spent in the brothel and like how developmental that was and how like I would say like you you know we're saying like oh she's become a full person who sees the full spectrum of humanity and like what it means to grow up and go through this stuff. But I would say like in some ways in her exploration and in her curiosity, she's experienced things that some people never do. And in that way, like she becomes so formidable by the end of the film to all the men and so intimidating, especially having control of her sexuality in such a, in such a powerful way. And it's kind of talked about with the canless situation when, when she proposes to him and they're kind of talking about sex and, and all this stuff. She's kind of like, she's such an expert in and like has just lived such a life she's lived many lives in one life it seems um and to to see her come come full circle at the end of this story and to to be like face to face with the person that she was married to before who happens to be terrible and formidable on his own in a in a really bad way uh and that she's like able to best him and how everything plays out there i like those changes because in the original she kind of like attempts to defend herself and it ends up shot in the foot and then the men rush in to help and all that kind of thing this is her on her own i think this is a really strong change actually it's her on her own uh, like in essence captured in a way that she hadn't been like this is the most captured she's been in either story and she put she is now like become her own savior in a sense and and like yeah. uses the the um chloroform kind of like drink throws it in his face and then he ends up shooting himself which is a fun little inversion of that scene from the book <laughs> uh and and i just love how that plays out and then the the fuck yeah at the end which to talk about some of the brothel stuff the i like that we didn't lose the bisexuality either or or yeah. whatever spectrum of sexuality she she's identifying with yeah. um and sexual seemed like to me I, I thought that that was a that was a really like powerful moment where i was like oh cool she is expressing her own sexuality in ways that she wants to in a way that typically in brothels you would think of like the men are coming in they're paying money and having sex with women and that like power dynamic is very like that structure is there and then she's still able to find freedom and love seemingly of some kind with this with this other person and then yeah like luke said at the end the poly relationship that's seemingly there with with the kind of i don't know if he's meek but like interesting canlis and what he represents yeah. to the story and then he is kind her, of meek. her other lover um and and then ultimately the the fuck yeah of putting the goat's brain in into all uh the general's body is awesome <laughs> Yeah, and agreeing with James, I did like that change where she does go and stay with her former husband and just that whole experience she has there, I thought was a really good scene. And that was something else I did see people complain, like feeling like the movie went on too long and like that scene maybe wasn't necessary, but I really liked it. And then, yeah, the scene where he shoots himself in the foot again was just, you know, the phrase shoot yourself in the foot. And then he literally does that. <laughs> and then, yeah, with her putting the goat goat's brain in his head i thought yeah it was just a really fun ending yeah it's interesting i um i'm gonna i've been working through my thoughts on the ending here because they're kind of complicated um and i'm gonna i'm gonna try and lay them out and then you two can react and, and tell me what you think but um having the, I, I agree a lot of these changes are really smart I, I think it's very focused on her sort of breaking free and having her be imprisoned by her uh former husband and also if we think of her more as the child, this is her father. So she's with her father, who she ends up killing, right? Or uh, swapping his brain out. We don't know what happens to his actual brain. Um, but I, if it's just discarded, she has basically killed her father in the end, or reformed in a way that in a way that she finds more pleasing. 
So to me, this is all about her asserting control over her life. Her God dies. She takes his place. She becomes the new surgeon who is capable of these fantastical creations. Um, she has his house she now lives in. She has taken his place. She has taken his role. Um, and she has slain her father slash former husband, essentially, and turned him into this goat man, um, which is a funny like moment to end on. But where I think this all comes back around to the difference between the two is we lose the element of her wanting to improve the world, which I think was such an essential sort of maturation moment for her where she realized what I want in life is to improve the world. And that's why we get that final letter where she's writing about how none of this is true because she realizes this is going to get in the way of the thing that she's doing now, which is that what she actually cares about. And that's like her important work um, in politics and as a, as the surgeon. And she's like, this stuff is just going to muddy the waters. I'm going to deny all of it and say it was untrue. Um, and that focus like beyond yourself to me is like more empowering in a sense. It's like the movie doesn't go that far. Instead, it just gets to the point of her escaping and asserting control. And then it stops there. Whereas the book took it to that next level of like, not only is that what she does, but she wants to go further and she wants to improve the world. Um, and we see her sort of self-actualize in that way. And I was missing uh, that, I think, for that reason. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. And I definitely agree as well on that. Yeah, we don't we know she wants to put good out into the world and she's becoming a doctor and we can assume what she's going to end up doing. But the focus isn't even on. Like you just said, the focus isn't on the change she makes in the world. The movie could have included that in some way. They could have found a way. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, it's a good point. I um, feel like when I finished the movie, I was maybe bringing some baggage from the book in kind of uh, finishing it out in my, you know, I was kind of extrapolating the rest of the story where, where I thought she would do all the good. But if you're if you're just a film viewer, you might not have that subtlety to the very end there so it's a good point i i don't think it really the the story changed like it, it skewed a little different i still feel like she's going to do good in the world by being a doctor like that's implied you're going to do good things but for her to well, her killing a man isn't necessarily an auspicious yeah. start <laughs> what's the hippocratic oath on that like what's the <laughs> is that yeah, okay I mean, the, he was admittedly terrible and i feel no sympathy for him <laughs> I think, yeah, and then is like his brain in a goat or something that's yeah. interesting to I don't think know. about. I think this is a good maybe way to transition into our final call here about whether or not we found book or film better. Uh, James, do you want to start us off and then I'll go and then Laura, you can you can put a cap on it. I don't think, based on everything I've said so far, that this is going to come as a surprise, but I'm going to take the movie in this case. I think that Yorgos Lanthimos uh, interprets Alistair Gray's words and and creates a world so unique and so unlike many things I've seen in the past. Um, and I mean, just the visual style, the the performances of Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, the 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 direction, the, the cool things that I've, we've learned about the behind the scenes of how they built up the story and how uh, he had conversations with Alistair Gray. And I'm sure they bounce ideas for an adaptation off of one another. And uh, I just think that like Yorgos Lanthimos is making, again, transgressive stories. Like he's 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 going into the taboo. You have to know going in that there's going to be some upsetting stuff possibly, but I think that there's something good to that as well. Uh, and and I like a story like this. I, I actually saw this is a whole other can of worms, but I saw someone online that it's a film critic that I respect uh, kind of compare this as the other side of the coin to like the Barbie movie that came out this year. 
and uh, it has a kind of fish out of water character that hasn't had this the baggage that society has put on them thrust into that scenario you've got your ken like uh character who's kind of uh immature and lashes out and starts to uh you know push back against our main character in ways with ken and a and a wetterburn and there's like kind of if you start to draw the comparisons there's something there but i think that and i think that like the the idea of uh autonomy like like women having autonomy and women like like women being the the force behind their own story in every way that's what this these these two stories are championing and, and um yeah i just i thought that was a really interesting uh thing to kind of break down i think this does it obviously skewing from a male perspective as it's written and and then also directed by a man um but attempting to tell a, a story along the same lines uh and uh man i just i was really taken with the film i loved it i thought it was very funny very in the yorgos lentimos style um and uh, I won't, i'm excited to see more from yorgos and, and emma stone i went back and forth a lot on this because i enjoyed this movie a lot um i had my criticisms which i think i finally was able to put into words here about the ending like there were certain things that i felt was kind of lacking um but I love a lot of the stuff that this brought to it. I, I, a lot of the changes are really smart. It, it did focus more on her story, which really is what is the most interesting bits of the, the book is her maturation and her exploration of life and her coming to the realization that um, she actually wants to improve the world, which I thought was beautifully done here in the sense of her having that conversation where she says, you're a cynic and like, you're just a hurt little boy who's afraid to afraid of the world, right? Um, I forget exactly what the line was, but it was a really smart way to represent that. And um, I think it was right out of the book, if I remember correctly, it was very similar. Um, and so her commitment to improve the world is there. So even though it wasn't the focus at the end, I think it's still present. And I think you could still read it as the subtext. I think she does even ask McCandless about that and like whether or not um, you think the world can be improved. And when he says that he does think that, that's like one of the tests, I think, for her of whether or not she thinks she can be with him. So those elements are present. And ultimately... I think having at least a bit of it um, and combined with everything you laid out so so eloquently there, James, I'm not even going to try and, and, and say it the same way, but uh, just the brilliant filmmaking that was on display, I'm going to ultimately land with the film on this one too, with the full caveat of uh, it owes a lot to this book. And I do think the book uh, is, is, is on par with it, and I don't think it would be... Uh, wrong for anyone to say that they preferred the book because I, I think it is it is good enough and it deserves it. I really like what Luke had said earlier because there was something with this movie that I I just couldn't like figure out like why I didn't like it more because I went into it just like so excited and wanting to love it that first time. But I think you make a really good point about how in the book when Victoria slash Bella adds her own thing like whether or not, because then later we find out that her brain was younger. So whether or not what McCandless wrote is true in this book, Bella, she doesn't want that to be the focus of her life. She's like, you know, I went on, you know, she talks about just all of these other things in her life that she did. But in McCandless's version, and assuming he exaggerated aspects of it, he focuses on especially her sexual awakening, right? Because that's a huge part in book and movie. And so the fact that that's such a huge focus and then in the book, seeing that that's what a man chose to focus on in her experience rather than focusing on something later in life. That's what he found to be the most interesting to focus on. And so, yeah, so I'm going to say the book. I prefer that one. 
even though the movie, they are like a great companion piece, but like you guys have been saying, like there's going to be majority of people are going to watch this movie and not read the book at all. And so the book just gives us that extra layer and gives more nuance and depth to the story. Yeah. And just seeing like what the man chooses to focus on when telling a woman's story versus what the woman is like, no, actually this part is what I want people to think about and remember, not this other part. I really like the movie. And ultimately, though, I like the book a bit better. As good as this was, and the, and the fact that I wouldn't change it, it's still like, oh, I almost wish it could have been adapted by a woman just to see what she would have brought to this story. But still, um, I, I, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I'm glad that you stood up for the book, though, here at the end. I think that that's appropriate for this one. Um, so so I'm, I'm pleased to see that. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I'm curious, what is up next on the Why the Book Wins YouTube channel? And what can people look forward to? I don't have a video coming out this week, but next week I have The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which is uh, it's kind of like a YA drama about World War II, the Holocaust. Um, and then heavy, Dune 2. Heavy material. I remember, I remember that book. To give people a sneak peek. I loved the book, but I definitely have some complaints with the movie. Uh, and then, yeah, Dune 2. I'm very excited to see that. So that is also coming up. Um, so, yeah, that's the next couple of weeks what I have going on. Awesome. Uh, we are also covering Dune 2. We'll go ahead and announce it here. That'll be our next episode. Um, but yeah, definitely check out the Why the Book Wins channel. Uh, it's it's awesome. We, we've been following you since you started and seeing your channel grow like it has and some of your videos blowing up. Um, it's been very exciting. I've been cheering for you. I also wanted to thank you guys because I reached out to you um, in like early 2022, I think. And my YouTube channel, I started in like September of 21. So I reached out to you pretty soon. I mean, I had a podcast before that, but uh, like the fact that you guys agreed <laughs> to collaborate now, looking back, I'm kind of impressed because I was just some nobody YouTube channel. So the fact that you were like, yeah, let's work together. Like I'm now realizing like how cool that was. So thank you guys. <laughs> well, we love having you on. Thanks for coming again. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the feeling is, is mutual, like just for you to reach out to us, like that was we're covering a lot of the same a lot of the same material when we talk about adaptations and stuff so i like to think of our our i mean forgive me if i'm overstepping but i like to think of these as like companion uh you know channels like or like yeah. or podcasts in general like I, I like to see your take on things and then things that we cover our take i think it's it's cool to uh to stick together you know in this adaptation game yeah definitely and i immediately noticed that although there was a decent amount of overlap you were being drawn to projects that weren't even on our radar. There was always like a, an element of stuff that you were covering that we didn't even know about. Um, so I, yeah, it's great. It's like, as you well know, covering adaptations, there's so many of them that it's impossible to talk about them all. And there's more coming out all the time that you can barely keep up. And we have to make hard choices all the time. And ultimately, a lot of the time, it comes down to our personal tastes and what we're interested in end up becoming what we focus on. And because of that, we we miss tons of stuff. And um, it, I think it's it's... If you're really interested in adaptations across the spectrum, you know, it's good to diversify. And, and uh, I, I like that about your channel, that you you always clue me in on stuff that I didn't even know about. All right, so we've gone long here, but we have got to say goodbye. So thank you so much again for coming on, Laura. Yeah, thank you so much again for inviting me. Thanks, Laura. We'll see you next time. So if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, like and subscribe on the video. And if you're on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe there as well. And to let us know in the form of a rating and review, uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, or in the comments of the video. We just want to hear from you. So reach out to us. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, all of those at Ink to Film, really anywhere you want to look, we're there. 
Also, we have a Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, then you are amazing. Um, and we have all kinds of bonus content on offer up for you over there. We also have an upcoming quarterly project that's going to be following. Like we already announced in this episode, we're doing Dune 2 next. Following that is going to be our first quarterly project of the year where we let our listeners decide. And specifically, our patrons get to vote on a poll for what that's going to be. So if you would like to have the ability to choose what we're going to cover next, definitely check out our Patreon. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Thanks again uh, to Laura for coming on. This has been a fun project, man. Uh, new filmmaker for me. I'm, I'm really glad I got exposed to, to Yorgos Lanthimos. I'll be keeping an eye on him going forward for sure. But uh, next up, we're heading back to Arrakis, and I am beyond excited. I heard this score in my mind as soon as you yeah. said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just started rereading the book. Like, I'm so excited to talk about that and talk about the original movie. And then I don't even know I'm, I, what this movie is going to be like. Uh, this should be a really fun one. So make sure to check us out next week with that. And Fonda Lee returns. So if you're a Fonda Lee fan, you're going to want to pay attention to that one. But until next time, keep adapting. Thank you.